Welcome to part two with Kevin Hepburn. The conversation now turns specifically to Kev's latest ultimate adventure, finishing Ultraman Australia. Kev tells us firsthand how hard this race was and the toll it took on his body. We hope you enjoy it. What inspired you to sign up for this event? And talk about the process of actually signing up because it's not your normal race entry sign-up where you just get online, you know, put your, put your credit card details in and you get in. There's a bit of a process to actually um, be invited because you're actually getting invited to the Ultraman race, aren't you? That's right. So uh, when I uh, – the region, originally I decided to do Ultraman was – I don't know. I just <clears throat> like to do things that other people haven't done. As you said, I like to give everything a go and no one at Beckworth Racing had actually completed a, uh, an Ultraman event yet. So I was looking and thinking, what things can I do that uh, other people haven't done? And originally I was going to go over to Tasmania and run 13 marathons in 13 days and start a big donation fund for that. And um, still hasn't, still haven't ticked, still haven't said I'm not doing that one yet. But uh, I was on the computer and I came across uh, this Ultraman event I thought this looks pretty epic. It's in Noosa. It looks beautiful. We love Noosa. I'm not doing the Noosa triathlon again, so what else can I do in Noosa? And uh, and one of the big drawing cards to Ultraman was that, as I said, no one at Beckworth Racing had actually done it. Um, so I wanted to be the first Beckworth athlete to actually participate in something like that. And I knew mentally I could push myself through an Ironman with injuries. So I, I'm put, the, the biggest draw card to me for long-distance sports is the mental the mindset uh, and just seeing how far you can take your mind and the body will go wherever the mind will let it go. So I chose the Ultraman event. I put in the application and to to get accepted into Ultraman, you need to have completed an Ironman in under 13 hours, which is pretty achievable if you've done an Ironman before. And you had to just put in um, why you think you'd be very, you'd be, should be selected to do this race. Uh, what's the reasoning behind why you should get selected to do this race? Because they only take, at the time, this was pre-COVID, they only took 50 athletes. So they had 247 applications and they took 50 athletes internationally, worldwide, uh, and I got selected. I didn't think I was going to get selected and I got selected. Um, but, yeah, it's still like every other race, you put your credit card details down and then once you get accepted, they take money off you, a little bit more than what an Ironman is. So it's quite an expensive venture, an Ultraman. But uh, for me it was a bucket list, so... You know, you can't put a price on things like that. Um, got accepted. So how far out uh, from the Ultraman did you um, have to put your details and all that into selection? Was it the year before, two years? 12 months. So you get 11 months. That they, one month from the application started, they um, close the application and you get accepted and then you have 11 months to prepare for the race. Now let's talk about – uh, the actual distances in the in the race. So as people know, an Ironman is 3.8 kilometres, 180-kilometre ride and a 42-kilometre run. An Ultraman goes over three days. So day one uh, consisted of a 10K swim and then how far was the first ride? 145. 145. Yeah. You can't remember. You're only out there for a couple of hours. Yeah, <laughs> just a few. <laughs> Yeah, 145 um, kilometres. Then the second day is just a ride all day. Yeah, 275 kilometre ride, I think it was. And then the third day is a double marathon day, so 84.4 kilometres. That's correct, yeah, 84.4. Now, with this, there's also you had cutoff times in you each day. Yes, yeah, so you had 12 hours to finish each day. Uh, if you didn't finish the day, you, could, you couldn't – you could progress. So uh, people do progress, but you don't – 
you're a DNF. So you could, uh, if you didn't come in on the 12 hours, technically you're not allowed to finish the race um, each day. So, yeah, so, and you know what? You need every bit of it, I think. The training for this consisted, would have been a lot of hours. I know you did a lot of hours on um, your turbo. Yeah. So let talk us through a normal, and you're running your own business too. So you're running your own business. You've got a young family. So talk us through a week of training for an Ultraman. Yeah, so the hardest, like you said, the hardest part about fitting the training in is when you run your own business and you have a, a young family, it's trying to make sure that everybody benefits, not everybody, anybody suffers throughout this whole adventure and it's a bit hard to do that when it gets into the peak of training. But trying to, um, you know, do 15 to 20 hours a week of training on top of running your business and still spending time with your wife and son, it's definitely a, a challenge in itself and, and like, you know, with triathlon, if you're not doing triathlon, you're talking about triathlon or you're training triathlon. So your whole life is triathlon. And so your family really need to accept it, especially at that level of Ultraman, really need to accept the fact that you're going to do something like this and get on board and be supportive because, and I was very fortunate that my wife and my son and my parents were really supportive of the whole venture because I couldn't have done any of it without them. Um, they had to sacrifice probably more than I did because I was the one doing the work. I was the one still in, in the in the actual event or the training and the hype where they just didn't see me. Like I wasn't there for six hours a day or I wasn't there for 20 hours a week. So they were the ones that really suffered the most through the whole adventure. But, um, yeah, it was hard. It was very similar to an Ironman prep. It was just a lot of rep, rep, um, repetitive days. So uh, Adam and I... Adam knew me well enough with my body to know what the best structure for training was for me. So it wasn't necessarily longer sets. It was just more um, double set days. So it might be a run in the morning and a run in the afternoon or a ride in the morning and a ride in the afternoon. So I was still getting the kilometres done, but I wasn't going out for long journeys because through experience and injuries, my body didn't really respond well to um, long, long sets. So what would be your longest swim you did, longest swim, longest bike ride and longest run leading up to the event in a training? So my longest swim was six and a half kilometres um, in a pool, in a 25-metre pool. So that was a lot of laps. Um, my longest ride was 210 kilometres. Did that take you about 20 hours? Or? Yeah, I had to take the week off work for that. Um, <laughs> my, longest, uh, my longest ride was on Zwift. And it was 210 kilometres and it took me eight hours. I think it was eight hours. Um, my longest outdoor ride was 195. <laughs> so that's a long day. That's a long day at the office. And my longest run, um, I didn't really get up there in the runs. I think my longest run was 34 kilometres uh, in the lead-up to the Ultraman. So they would have, like, really, well, I had a bit of an interrupted lead-up. So realistically, they probably should have been a little bit higher the swim was always going to be what the swim was going to be with my shoulder. Um, so six and a half Ks, we were pretty pretty fortunate to get that distance in. And I knew if I could swim six and a half, I could swim ten. Um, the ride was uh, – I was quite sick coming to the lead-up. So right when we got into peak weeks, I was really I really didn't get to get those numbers that we wanted to get. So um, if I could go back on it, I probably wish I could have got a couple of more – probably three more peak weeks in. Um, but yeah, we just did, we worked with the cards that we were dealt. 
And I think going through a pandemic at the same time probably didn't help your uh, training. No, that's the other thing, you know. It was very hard trying to, you know, indoor training through pandemics and the race was actually postponed 12 months because of the pandemic. So four, four and a half weeks before the Ultraman was supposed to go ahead, they cancelled it. So I moved it to the following year. So I did 11 months of prep and then had to do another 13 months of prep. <laughs> So the, my whole uh, Ultraman journey wasn't just 11 months. It was two years. Um, it absorbed my life for two years. Um, if it went another year, I was not going to do it. I wasn't going to go through that whole that whole thing again, um, just going back to the fact of how much sacrifice it was on the family and life and business and all those things. But, but we got there in the end. Yeah, you did get there in the end. So you're doing, you know, 15 to 20 hours of training, Um a long ride. How much? How much food are you consuming? Because we spoke about this earlier with your strongman. You would just eat. Now I know that you're a lot more calculated with what you're eating and putting into your body. So how much would you be consuming in a in a week like that? So the hardest part about um, endurance sports and doing the long stuff is controlling your diet because. When you're pounding the pavement or you're out on the bike for six or seven hours or you're swimming so much or 15, 20 hours a week of training, your body is constantly craving carbohydrates. Obviously, we know carbohydrates is the fuel that uh, is our body's fuel and your body is constantly craving it. And the hardest part about um, endurance sports is not giving your body too much because it just wants more and more and you only need to give it so much to, to perform the movements that or the exercise that you need to do. But psychologically our body's going give me more energy give me more energy so the hardest part was harnessing my my appetite uh and managing my weight throughout the whole journey because you can train 20 hours a week and still put on weight because your body just wants carbs and wants energy so on a long ride uh, i really relied on infinite um infinite supplements and that uh, was my main fuel source on long rides so i would probably have about um six or seven hours worth of infinite um and then after after my long efforts, it was just carbs and proteins. Lots of fifty percent of my diet was carbohydrates, and forty percent was protein, and ten percent was fats. But it was predominantly carbohydrates for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and every other snack in between. It's just it's quite amazing. Um, I'm, I've only ever done one Ironman, but yeah, the amount of what you're craving is unbelievable. And even after you finish, like I've had weeks where I'm still would crave food. And you know you're just all, always looking for something to eat. So you've done your you've done your you've done your two years instead of one year for training for an Ultraman. You've you've got there. Uh, the race was in May. Is that correct? May um, I don't know. May 9th, tenth, and eleventh, wasn't it? I think. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So yeah. it was, it was, um, it was, um, it was after, after Port Macquarie, the which again another, another, another event, event got, got postponed. postponed. So you went up to Noosa. When did you get up to Noosa? Because the race started on the Friday. So athletes had to be in Noosa um, by the Wednesday. So there was quite a bit of um, uh, expectations for, uh, for the athletes participating. So there was only 37 athletes, 30, yeah, 37 athletes participated in the race because of the pandemic. There was no, uh, no allowed of any international athletes. So 37 Australians. Um, I got there, the uh, left here, I drove up with my friend Troy on the Friday the week before, so I got there on the uh, the Sunday, before, the week before the race. So I had quite a bit of time there to get organised and get settled in. 
had to have my bike checked in by the Wednesday by a cert, by Trilogy Cycles, which is uh, one of the sponsors of the race, uh, to go out, go over your bike and make sure you're right. Uh, on Thursday, I had to have the athlete check in and I had to go and get um, all my health and all my obs checked. So it's just not like a normal race. I had to get my bloods done and had to just make sure that I was in con- uh, the right condition to actually participate in the race and wasn't going to put myself or the race at risk by participating. And then uh, on the Friday, we, the race actually started on the Saturday, The ride, uh, the, but on the Friday we had a, a, a pre-breakfast where all the athlete and all the support team got down and they did a big race briefing over a breakfast with everybody and quite a lot goes into this race. Um, there's no there's no road closures or it's not like an Ironman race or any triathlon you've ever experienced. Um, you've got to supply your own support team for the whole race because there is no road closures. You're, you're competing in... Uh, on roads and on footpaths with general population as cars zooming past and not only do you have to race but you also have to apply by all the road rules and the traffic lights and the roundabouts and all that stuff. So um, we had a quite a intensive um, race briefing to make sure that everybody was going to be safe throughout the race. So let's also talk about your support crew. You had Troy who went up there with you. You had Joss, Nathan, uh, Brian Benchoff, and the social media man, Adam, who I think spent more time posting stuff on Instagram than actually um, doing any supporting. Yeah. Well, that was his job. We made that his job. His number one job was to handle all social media for the weekend. Oh, look, he did a great job because I know all BRT athletes were enthralled with what was happening and being able to see it and watch you actually go through those three days was quite amazing. You had um, – so you had your – you know, your briefing, you've got everything set, set up. Saturday was the first day, the 10-kilometre swim. Now, as we've spoken about, um, swimming's not your forte, but you had Nathan Taylor um, as your supporter in that, and he was on a paddleboard. So Nathan uh, had to um, – so throughout the whole race, in the supported race, I had to have someone with me the whole time. So in the, in the swim, I had to have – every athlete had to have a paddler on a board next to them. Um, with uh, giving them their nutrition and just ensuring that they were safe, which was really good for me. Uh, it was probably the best part about the swim was I didn't have to sight at all. All I had to do, and Nathan was on my only breathe on my left-hand side when I'm swimming, so all I had to do was keep Nathan in my sights and we decided he was going to be two metres off me. So every time I breathed, I just followed him and he steered me around the course. And He stopped me every 45 minutes um, to give me a gel for nutrition Um but, yeah, we, I was very fortunate to have him out there. It's 10 kilometres is a long swim uh, and <clears throat> I didn't want to do it. I wouldn't have wanted to do it if I had to sight because it would have made it a hell of a lot worse, just knowing I didn't have to do anything except focus on my arms. And how long did the swim take you? The swim took me four hours and 20 minutes. Like coming out of the water, you, you get that taste in your mouth. I've also seen a, a gentleman who swam around, um, I think he swam around the island of England, and his salt tongue. So how was your body after finishing that swim? So in the swim, we actually, um, when you normally wear a wetsuit, you have to put um, lubricant on your neck, but this time we actually taped our necks because the lube all wears off. So we actually taped all around our necks to to stop the friction from the wetsuits. Uh, I also had lip balm all over my lips from the salt water uh, and Nathan kept me up with the fuel um, while I was swimming, but... Uh, that was the hardest part. It wasn't. A, it wasn't just a uneventful swim either. It was quite choppy. It was very choppy, actually. 
Um, I think it got, really got to about three foot swells at one stage uh, with a shocking current. So it was a hard swim. I think I vomited three times under the water while I was swimming. Um, Nathan kept looking around. He thought there must have been a seal or something around, but it was just me making weird noises under the water. Um, come out of the water and it took me quite a while to uh, get my bearings and get myself vertical again because I'd been horizontal for so long um, and just wanted to get fluids in. So, uh, the, uh, yeah, it was tough. I didn't really um, – I think I vomited the most, which was two hours into my ride where everything just started coming back up from the water. So my body held onto it for two hours um, before it released it all and then I went through a phase there on the bike for about 20 minutes where – there was just salt water pouring out my nose and pouring out my mouth, and uh, it was beautiful. It was a great thing to see. <laughs> oh, it would have been a great thing to see. You had a bit of time in transition. You got yourself set up. You got on the bike, 145 kilometres. Um, were you having one of your support crew riding with you, or were they just in the car behind you? And talk us through that afternoon. Yeah, so the support team had to be in a vehicle. Um, they, they call it the leapfrog technique. So each athlete had a support vehicle follow them and then the support team would get 10 minutes in front of them uh, and then give them any, give the athlete anything they need when you ride past and then the, you, you, the support team would wait five minutes and then take off again and then get another 10 minutes up the road. So they basically leapfrogged me for the six hours. I think it was six hours I was on the bike for on day one. Um, yeah, so it was 1,500 metres elevation on day one, so it was not an easy ride. We went up some really punchy hills. When I came out of the water, my heart rate wouldn't go under 175 beats. So I was riding on flat roads and my heart rate was through the roof. And in, if you've ever ridden in Noosa, you know there's some good hills there. So the first hill we had to attack was Noosa Hill. So I started the bottom of Noosa Hill with a heart rate of 175. So you can imagine what it was like when we got to the top. Um, I couldn't breathe. I was panicking. So we actually decided then I ripped my heart rate monitor off at the top of Noosa Hill and I spent the rest of the race with no heart rate monitor. I went on feel because it became a bit of a psychological thing for me. So I just went on feel and then I didn't have to really address it too much. So my support team followed me, leapfrogged me for the six hours and fueled me. They were giving me day one. I wasn't really hungry. They were just giving me infinite um, lollies and uh we got the halfway point on day one and I still hadn't brought up any of that salt water so I wasn't feeling very well. And someone gave me a, a handful of lollies and in that handful of lollies was a black cat, which I normally love black cats, but the black cat was what got the wheels in motion when to relieve all the salt water out of my body. So for the next 20 minutes I um, got rid of everything and if you ask my support team, the second half of my day one ride was my best probably ride of the whole race. I, I absolutely nailed it. I, was, I think I was sitting on 35 k's an hour for most of the second half of the ride on day one. Um, felt fantastic. Um, yeah, and then followed me all the way in, and I finished day one in, I think, 10 hours and 45 minutes in total. Just just inside the uh, cutoff time by an hour, which is good. Did you – you spoke about this. You had your heart rate. Did you – on the bike, were you just going to ride to heart rate or did you were you going to ride to power? What was the plan there? Oh, we were just going to ride to power. So um, my heart rate was never really out of it. It was out of the equation once I took the heart rate monitor off uh, and it was up and down. So we just decided to run to power and cadence. So in my head, I just wanted to sit between 160 to 180 watts. Um, 
because it was just about being conservative. It was never about going hard like you would in normally other race. It was just about finishing and coming in on the timeline. Because I, I had such an interrupted prep for this race, um, it was never about breaking records. It was just ensuring that I came in under the 12 hours. So my, I was really fortunate that the guys that were in the car, especially Nathan, were so meticulous about the time I was on the bike that they were telling me what pace I needed to sit on to ensure that I came in on the cutoffs, um, especially day two. Day two was probably the most important for that but um, because we knew we, we were working, racing against the clock. Day one we had a bit more time to play with. Day two and day three was always going to be a bit more lenient on the time. So you finished the um, day one um, swim and ride. What was your recovery um, that afternoon when you got back to the um, hotel? So day one um, – was probably the hardest uh, recovery out of all the three days because uh, we got back to the house and I'd had quite a bit of caffeine uh, out on the bike um, on day one. So my my body was tired but my heart and my mind were not. So I couldn't relax. I couldn't eat. I wasn't hungry. I think I had one slice of pizza or two slices of pizza after the race, couldn't get anything in. Went to bed at 8 o'clock and I got two hours sleep on day one. Um, I just, my body didn't want to shut down. So uh, it was just about getting in the Normatec boots um, and trying to relax myself as much as possible to get ready for day two. But unfortunately, uh, I had the absolute worst night on day one. I woke up, if you ask Nathan, I woke up on day two. He picked me up and took me down to the race at 5. I think we had to start at 5 in the morning. And I just said, I don't know if I can do this, mate. I have had two hours sleep uh, and I'm wired. I was still wired from day one. But um, Wow. Sure. Yeah, sure enough, Nathan got into my head and he was the the, the, um, the calm talker and he said, no, nah, you can do it. That's what we're here for. So we got on the bike and off we went. So we're going into day two. Nathan's picked you up. As you said, you are wired. You didn't think you could do it. What time did the ride start? It's the longest it's a long day, 275 kilometres, you say? It started at 5.30 in the morning. And you've got 12 hours to get this done? Yeah, and it was um, 2,500 metres elevation. That's a lot of climbing, over 275 kilometres. So you've started, you've got, again, your support crew. Um, again, there was some great footage, from. I'm pretty sure, from this day of you getting Vaselined up. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I don't know where we went wrong, but we forgot the um, chamois cream. There was no chamois cream in the car. So once the chamois cream wore off, we had nothing. So we used Vaseline and um, my lovely wife took the job of putting Vaseline in the areas that it needed to go and uh, it was very tender and very sore, but, uh, but she did a good job. Um, we worked with what we had. I think, I think we ended up asking another crew who had some, um, <laughs> had some hemorrhoid cream. So we ended up getting some hemorrhoid cream and it's actually – Going back on that, now if you ever do a long race, this hemorrhoid cream is the duck's guts. I will use it because it numbs everything. Um, but, yeah, yeah, it was uh, – day two was uh, a long day in the saddle, 2,500 metres of climbing, um, just some tough hills. At the 180-kilometre mark of the ride, there was a hill that was about 20% incline and it went for about a K and a half. It was just um, – yeah, they really picked the hardest hills they could find. And not only that, the roads were not very, very good at all. They were hard bitumen where your drink bottle's shaking, your, everything's rattling, and it just kind of makes that ride ten times harder. You know, everything just hurts when you're riding. 
it'd be very physically hard, but what about mentally as well? Like, even though you support crews there, you are on the bike for 275 kilometres really by yourself. That's right, yeah. So you don't see anybody. That's the other thing. So you've only 37 people in the race and everybody rides at their different paces, not like a normal race where you've got people that you can sit behind. The, I was I rode the whole ride by myself. There was somebody I know in, after the race or at the end of each day that there was a, a couple of girls that were around me. They were always either five minutes in front of me or ten minutes behind me. But you were never you were never riding with somebody. You rode the whole race by yourself. So uh, the support team were fantastic. And and the a really act, a good thing about the support team is they recognised that you are alone a lot. So that leapfrogging technique might have become more frequent. So. I knew that it was only a matter of five or ten minutes and I would be seeing them again. So they were in my ears, being positive, being on top of me, not allowing me to get into that, you know, that really bad space because there was some times that I was in some really bad places, um, but they were fantastic. I could, you could not do this race without a support team, I don't think. Um, you know what, there's probably a small percentage of people out there that can, but me personally mentally i needed to i needed to really rely on the emotional side for the support team to help me get through um because there's some really dark times um and energy wise you know these guys fueled me the whole race so not like in an ironman race where you go and you've got your drink bottles on your bike and you know that in every 15 minutes you need to have 250 mils of your drink bottle drank um i didn't have to think of any of that these guys in my car, they had a whiteboard and they were writing down what they were giving me at the time and knowing that when I needed to have it again. So I would pull up, they'd say, this is what you need now. I'd grab, I didn't even question it. I didn't even have to worry about any of that. All I had to focus on was getting A to B. That's quite amazing that they were able to do that. And I think that would have, yeah, as you said, it helped you immensely throughout the race to have them there and for you not to have to think because a lot of people that have done Ironman, it's, your body will keep going, but your mind is something that once you get tired in the mind, you start to can really struggle, and that's when things start, start stopping. That's right. Everything shuts down. Yeah, and you start making mistakes, especially at the back end of a bike ride with where the roads aren't closed. You, you don't want to be making a mistake that could effectively stop your race, but, you know, might hurt you as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and that can happen, you know. So even more, and the good thing about my support team was the more they realised I was down and out, the more they made their stops frequent to make sure that I was okay and I was getting everything I need. And they were fantastic, even with the fuel. Some things, you know, when you're out there for 11 hours, Infinite only works for a certain bit. I think Infinite only worked for the first uh, four hours with me on day one, day two, and I started feeling sick. So actually the back end of each day, the saviour for me on the back end of each day was Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola got me through the end of each race. One of the most underrated sports drink of all time. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Except for day three when I, we'll talk about your day, day three drink that I love seeing. Um, so you've done that. How long did it take you to do the ride? So it took me 11 hours. 11 hours and 30 minutes, I think, on day two. 11 hours and 27 minutes it took me day two. So I came in with 33 minutes to go, which was really good because we thought um, we thought it was a 285k ride on day two. So we're all thinking that I wasn't going to come in on the time, um, and then we came into um, 
Twin Waters, and they said you've only got 20 k's to go or 30 k's to go. So we're beauty. I've just dropped 10 10 kilometers. We're on. We're going to make it. That would have been a great relief. And how were you when you got off the bike? Like we've spoken about you coming out of the water, trying to find your bearings. Now, how were you when you actually got off the bike at the end of the day? Look, I was uh, I was in better. I was in a better mindset on day two than I was on day one. Day one, when I got off the bike, I was quite unwell. Um, my blood pressure was up and my heart rate was quite high, like we spoke about. But day two, I was a lot more uh, in a better place mentally and physically. My legs were really sore. My hamstrings and my uh, hip flexors were really tight from being in a position for so long. But I was more welcoming to the recovery on day two. I got a massage on the table. I had massage therapists, five massage therapists for the athletes. As soon as you got off, um, finished the race, they would give you a massage, a 30-minute massage. So I... Uh, I was a lot better and I was hungry. I was really hungry on day two. So I was just about getting as much food as I could in um, to get ready for the day three and then straight home into the Normatec boots, into the spa, uh, and then tried to get in bed by 7 o'clock at night. So I had, And I had, a, I had a better night's sleep on day two. I think I had about six hours. Um, so I was feeling a little bit fresher going into the run on day three. So we're going into day three, the 84.4-kilometre run, double marathon. Now, for some people, just to run a marathon is a great achievement. So you've got 12 hours to do this. It was warm too, wasn't it? Yeah. So day three was the hottest day out of them all. It was 30 degrees and 94% humidity. Uh, at 5 o'clock in the morning, it was 90, 94% humidity. What time did you start the run? 5.30. 5.30. This one, you were able to have someone run with you? Yeah. So you had to have a pacer run with you the whole run. Uh, not There was certain parts... Um, so the first five kilometres of the run, um, running out of Noosa into, um, uh, I can't remember the next town, but running for the first five kilometres, you weren't allowed to have a support runner with you. So the crew just had to meet me. I think it was for traffic-wise. You couldn't have any cars going in and out of the town. So they had to meet me 5Ks out. So all us runners took off at 5.30 in the morning um, and we ran the first 5Ks by ourselves. And then uh, my first pacer for the day was Brian Benshaw. He jumped on board with me. Uh, and ran with me for the next, I think he ran the first 17 kilometres with me. But, um, yeah, they were, they were fueling me the whole time, so it was really cool. How were you at the start of today, though? Um, a lot better than hopefully day two. Yeah, I was the best. Out of all the days, day three, I was the best. I was, I was bubbly. My legs were tired, but I knew they were always going to be tired, and we trained for them to be tired. So I was up and about. I just wanted to get it done. I knew. I'd, I'd done the hardest part. Swimming was my biggest fear. That was out of the way. I'm not a big fan of long rides. That was out of the way. I knew that with a run, if, if things, if the wheels fell off, I could walk and still get it done. So I was in a pretty good mindset that we were on the last day. You've done the first, and people would have seen the footage, you've done the first marathon, the first half, and you've, you've had a nice little sit down, a little rest. Yeah. What was it like when you got to that turnaround point? So I was pretty unlucky going in on the run. I think 30 k's into the run, my feet swelled up through the mid-arches um, and created a fair bit of bruising through my feet. So, um, And they, they call it foot drop. I had foot drop in my right foot. So the, underneath the, the navicular, I think it's called, uh, dropped on my foot. So I couldn't put any pressure through my foot. So it became quite a challenge to run. And that happened at 30 k's. So I had 54 k's left a run on drop foot. Um, so it made it really hard. So I was got into a bit of a shuffle and a bit of a limp with my running. Um, when we got to the halfway point, it was hot. It was so hot by then. It was so much fuel. I think we went and worked it out over the run. I, I think I drank around 17 litres 
of water or fluid over the run. It was so Jeepers. hot. And that's not including the Zupa Dupas, the Coca-Cola. On that, did they weigh you before and after? They weighed me at the very start of the race and then they weighed me at the end of each day. So at the end of day one, I had put on one and a half kilos, which they actually uh, they think that's pretty common. That was salt water. Yeah, probably. And then day two, I had lost 900 grams of that. And then day three, I didn't lose a single gram. I weighed exactly the same on the start and on the finish. That's it. That's, that's just a testament to my support team. They kept me fueled that well. That's that's brilliant. That's really well done and good calculations. As you said, they had the whiteboard working it all out. And your support team, we'll go back to you, Ron, but your support team had a wealth of knowledge. Like Nathan, three times, been at Kona. Brian, he's done 10-plus Ironman events. Adam's been in the sport for, you know, 25-plus years. And Troy's just a good bloke in general. Yeah, don't, no, I don't know about that. But, yeah, no, yeah. he's a good bloke. He done a, yeah. Troy had done a lot but, of my running with me. But the wealth of knowledge in that car, especially with Joss with her background as well, it just was amazing. Just yeah. knew me. Just was. Just knew me mentally. Yeah. Uh, and and just knew my body. So as much as Jocelyn didn't really um, talk to me a lot, I'm, uh, Jocelyn's my yin and yang. So whenever um, she saw me bit down and out, she knew not to come near me because I'd probably break down a little bit if she saw me. So she kind of drove the car and kept her distance from me throughout the race, and probably t- just did a lot of talking in the car to the guys about what they should do. But she knew that she couldn't be too close to me throughout the race because I probably would have um, wanted a shoulder to cry on rather than a foot up the ass. <laughs> <laughs> so you've gone, you've sat down, you've got halfway, you've had these, you, you drop foot. What's, you're on the way, but what was the hardest part of the run? Like you've, you've spoken about your drop foot, but is it, you know, they talk about in marathons, you, you know, you're getting to that 30K mark and that's when the wheels can start falling off. Did you think you were going to make it at this stage? So it's a bit different. I've, I've ran marathons and that wall, it's true, you know, 30, it's hit me at 33 and 34 kilometres. Going into an 84-kilometre run, that wall didn't really pop up at the 30-kilometre mark because I still knew I had so far to go. But when the foot started hurting, so from 30 kilometres to uh, I think it was 61 kilometres were my hardest part of the race. Um, it was hot. I couldn't run properly. Um, there was no real structure to my running format. I was just running till I couldn't run anymore and then I'd walk a bit and then run until I couldn't run anymore. So it was a bit uh, mentally it was really tough. And the turning point, the real big turning point was um, good old Nathan Taylor. He jumped on with me at the, um, oh, it must have been 50-something kilometre mark, I think it was, and he decided to put some timing into my running. He said, why don't we just run for four minutes and walk for one minute? Run for four minutes and walk for one minute. I think it might have been four or five. And as soon as that happened, everything changed. There was structure to my run. I wasn't thinking about my pain anymore. I was just thinking about running that four-minute block. And he was telling me how long I had left. And the funny part about that was once I hit that four-minute four-and-one timing, I passed five people in the race. So their wheels were all falling off. So I think most people's wheels were falling off around the 60-kilometre mark. And I just kept knocking them down, knocking them down because they didn't really have any structure to their running. So a testament to Nathan put that running in there, that timing in there. And even, you know, going on to timing, the guy who came second in the run who ran some ridiculous like six hours, seven-hour run for the double marathon, he ran nine minutes on, one minute off from the start of that race to the finish. That was his plan. 
and he came second. So if I'd probably had that structure from the start, it might have been a little bit different, but um, I was feeling good. I thought I could have ran a bit further. Um, but, yeah, that was the turning point for me when Nathan said, let's do timing on the run. And I remember seeing some of the footage right at the end, and when you're coming over the bridge, I remember Adam going to you, only 4K to go or something, and you just looked at him and grunted. Like, you must have been. There wasn't much coming out. My foot was stuffed. I think by the end we got – Adam ran the last nine kilometres with me, and we were down to two minutes on and one minute off. My foot was that bad. Um, I couldn't run for any longer than two minutes. It was just it was just finishing, you know. My feet were hot. The body was drained. Uh, we knew we were going to finish. And, and running, running on, on – you, you were running on paths. Running, running on – you know, you know, those, those roads, roads, they, they are, are actually, actually really, really quite, quite hot. hot. The, 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 the heat oh, yeah. comes down the road. Yeah, it was hot. And roads, so we're running on the footpath, majority of it on the footpath and a little bit on the road and a lot on the roads as well. But there was only probably out of the whole 84 kilometres, I reckon there would have been five kilometres that were sheltered. The rest you were out in the elements the whole time. And this is why you had a slurpy during the run. Is this, that correct? Yeah, yeah. So they gave me – they were trying everything. So it was uh, Zupa Dupas were working really well. Um, uh, so I was pumping the Zupa Dupas and then got to the halfway mark and Zupa Dupas started having the reverse effect on me. So I started vomiting them up while we were running. So they said, Let's, give me a slurpy, tried the slurpy, and that, that didn't work very well. I think I got about three or four sips into that and then that went – came back up as quick as it went down. Um, so we went back on to, I think we were on infinite, uh, infinite is what we ran for the last part of the run that saved me in the second half of the run. Um, but we were trying everything. Like it was just a matter of let's, what can we get in in fluids wise? Water was just endless. Every chance I had, I either had water in my mouth or I was having water poured on me. Um, you know, I was out there for 11 hours on the run. So I needed to just, I was just trying to keep me cool, changing my clothes, uh, I think I've had three clothes changes, three sock changes. The uh, washing would have been massive. Yeah, you would have seen my car. No, it wasn't. The car that was driving, they were taking my clothes off and then hanging them out the window of the car when they were driving up and down and letting them dry. So when I got to the next point, when we did the next clothes change, just putting the same clothes on again, they'd just been dried. <laughs> they would have stunk. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was no, nothing pretty <laughs> about me. Yeah. And just to top it off, you've you've done your 84 kilometres of running and they decided to make you run down the beach to finish. Yeah, yeah. Let's make a guy run uh, his last kilometre on soft sand, which was an absolute workout. It was tough. It was tough. I mean, it was emotionally it was good because I knew I could see the finish line, but it was really tough. And I'll tell you that the, the main thing that got me through was um, – a few years ago, this race, because this race has been on for seven years or six years now, there's a guy who participated in this Ultraman race who had no legs, had no legs at all and competed in an Ultraman. Wow. And on day, on day one, yep. he, um, he, rode the, he did the swim, no worries, did the swim by himself. He did the ride in his wheelchair. And on day three, on day two, he did his ride in his, his uh, you know, one of those wheelchair bikes. And then on day three, he didn't want to have any um, any advantages over the other athletes, so he did his run in a wheelchair with just his hands, just a normal hand wheelchair. And when he got to that sand, yes. when he got to that sand, he had the option of running down the boardwalk, and he decided not to. He said, "I'm going to be like everybody else." So he got out of his wheelchair and crawled himself along the sand to the finish line. So that guy was in my head for the whole race. If he can do it. He crawled yeah. his way. 
The last kilometre he crawled on his hands. That's amazing. The finish line, yeah, and come in on the time too. Well, there we go, people listening out there. If that doesn't get you up and about to do something, not mu- not much else will. And also, uh, you got to run up the shoot with your support crew, which again was an, another amazing bit of footage. I the BRT squad chat was going off for three days, but everyone was just over the moon to see that footage of you running up the beach and then crossing that line with the with the crew. Yeah, it's fantastic to be able to experience it with them. You know, that race wasn't just ran by me, it was ran by all of us. So I was really good to have those guys there with me. I was really lucky. I was just the guys that I ended up having the support team with were just the, the right it was the right bunch of people. They jailed the whole three days. They all brought their own qualities to the race. They all knew me in these different ways. And it just um, it was awesome. Like it was such a such a good energy to be around and be together with and experience with. Um, I'll remember it for the rest of my life. So any plans to do another one or are we moving on? No, moving on. So um, you know what? It's not that it scares me to do it again. I would I would I would do it again, no dramas at all. I'd go through the whole prep. There's just a lot goes into it. There's a lot of sacrifice involved in it. And maybe it wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't over one year because it went for two years. It kind of really took a toll a fair bit in my life. So I just want to try something different. Um, I'll do epic things again. You'll definitely hear about some more epic things, whether my next goal will probably be um, 160K run. I'm doing a run next year, actually. I'm doing the 100K um, Blue Mountains run, the UTA 100 with Troy. We're going to train for that. So that's 100 kilometres over 4,500 metres elevation. So that'll be um, my next big thing. I'm actually going to Alice Springs, hoping pandemic-wise. I'm going to Alice Springs um, in t- about 20 days to do a four-day mountain bike race called the Redback. So I'm going on with Brad oh, wow. Keating. Yeah, so it's a six-stage mountain bike race in Alice Springs we're going to do on the 20th of August. How um, is your mountain biking skills going? They're getting good. I'm getting better. I'm only falling off doing, two times per ride now. Doing the black um, runs? Yeah, I've done a couple of blacks. I've done a black diamond. I've done a, I've done a couple of blacks. Um, I am getting better. I didn't. I rode yesterday and didn't fall off once. So that was. There must be things must be working in the right direction. But um, loving my mountain biking riding at the moment. Loving my running. So um, I will probably. I've got. I'm due to do the Ironman in Bustleton in December this year, and that'll probably be my last Ironman for a little while. And then I'll just get into some other endurance. It'll all be endurance, but. Uh, I'll probably have a break from triathlon for a little bit and just do some other epic things. Well, Kev, on behalf of everyone and all the listeners, we'd like to say thank you for sharing your wonderful life and your journey, not into triathlon, but completing the Ultraman um, and taking the time today to talk talk to us here at the Gossip Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me today, mate. I was glad to to share it all with you and – yeah, really glad to be in part of the Beckworth crew and have you as a friend. Thanks, mate. No worries, mate. Thanks, mate. All right. We'll talk soon. Catch. Thanks for listening to the Gossip Podcast with your host, Anthony Goss. For more great episodes, please visit our website, www.beckworthracing.com. And remember, in the great words of Coach Goss, do something. Do something.